Chapter Nineteen of An Outback Marriage by Andrew Barton Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Arrowhead Aussie. Chapter Fourteen: A Chance Encounter. The black boys went in with them to Pike's store to take back supplies on the pack horse. They travelled over the same country that they had seen coming up. The men at the stations greeted them with the same hospitality. Nothing was said about Considine's good fortune. It was thought wise to be silent, as he didn't know how soon his wife might hear of it. They left the gins at the blacks' camp, which they chanced on by a riverside. The camp was a primitive affair, a few rude shelters made by bending bamboo sticks together and covering them with strips of paper bark. Here the sable warriors sat and smoked all day long, tobacco being their only civilized possession. Carew was very anxious to look at them, a development of curiosity that Considine could not understand. Most uninteresting devils, I call them, he said. They're stark naked and they have nothing. What is there to look at? Having parted with Maggie and Lucy, they pushed onwards, the old man beguiling the time with disquisitions on the horse-hunting capabilities of his gins, whom he seemed really sorry to leave. As they got near Pike's, he became more restless than ever. See here, mister, he said at last. My wife's here, I expect, and if she gets wind of this, I'll never get rid of her. The only thing to do is slip away without her knowing, and she might never hear of it. I won't go into the place at all. I'll go on and camp down the creek and get the coach there after it leaves the town, and she'll never know. The town of Pikes consisted of a hotel, a store, a post office, a private residence, and coach stables. These were all combined in one establishment, so the town couldn't be said to be scattered. Pike himself was the landlord of the pub, keeper of the store, officer in charge of the post office, owner of the private residence, holder of the mail contract, and proprietor of the coach stables. Behind him was only wilderness and new country. Nobody ever saw him at home. Either he was on the road with a bullock team, bringing up supplies for the hotel and store, or he was droving cattle down on a six-month's journey to market, or he was away looking at new country, or taking supplies out to men on the half-provisioned stations of the Outerback, or else he was off to some new mining camp, or Opalfield, to sell a drayload of goods at famine prices. When Charlie and Carew rode up to the store, they did not see Pike, nor did they expect to see him. By some mysterious providence, they had arrived the very day the coach started on its monthly trip down to Baku, and in front of the hotel were congregated quite a number of people. Pike's wife and his half-wild children, a handful of bushmen, station hands, opal miners, and what not, and last, but not least, a fat lady of about forty summers, with flaming red hair. She was a fine lump of a woman, with broad shoulders and nearly the same breadth all the way down to her feet. She wore a rusty black dress, which fitted perilously tight to her arms and bust. On her head was a lopsided, dismantled black bonnet with a feather, a bonnet that had evidently been put away in a drawer and forgotten for years. Any want of colour or style in her dress was amply made up for by the fact that she positively glowed with opals. Her huge, thick fingers twinkled with opal rings. From each of her ears there dangled an opal earring the size of a form. Her old dress was secured round her thick, muscular neck by a brooch that looked like an opal quarry, and whenever she turned to the sun she flashed out rays like a lighthouse. Her face was fat and red, full of a sort of good-humoured ferocity. She moved like a queen among the bystanders, and shook hands gravely with each and all of them. She was hot, but very dignified. Evidently she was preparing to start in the coach, 
for she packed into the vehicle with jealous care a large carpet-bag of garish colouring that seemed to harmonise well with the opals. While she was packing this away, Charlie and Carew went into the store and bought such supplies as were needed for the establishment at No Man's Land. Gordon took the opportunity to ask the shock-headed old storekeeper, Pike's deputy, some questions about the lady, who was still scintillating between the coach and the house, carrying various small articles each trip. "'Don't you know her?' said the man, in much the same tone that Bret Hart's hero must have used when he was so taken aback to find that a stranger didn't know Flynn, Flynn of Virginia. "'Don't you know her?' he repeated pausing in his task of scooping some black cockroachy sugar from the bottom of a bin. "'That's the Opal Queen. She's off south, she is. You'll be going in the coach, will you?' "'Yes,' said Charlie. "'We're going in the coach. There's no extra fare for travelling with such a swell, is there? Where on earth did she get all those opals?' "'Oh, blokes gives em to her, passing back from the opal fields. In the rough, you know. Opal in the rough, well, it's hard to tell what it'll turn out.' and they'll give her a unk as sometimes turns out a fair dazzler. She's a A1 judge of it in the rough, too, if she buys a bit of opal. You bet your life it ain't a bad bit when it's cut. What about these ear stores? Going to take em with you? No, said Charlie. The black boy is here for them. He's going to take them back with him. What? Keogh's black boy? Well, I don't know as Pike'll stand old Paddy Keogh any longer. Paddy's had a dog tied up here. That is an account outstanding. This two years, and last time Pike was home, he was reckoning it was about up to Keogh to pay something. They're not for Keogh, said Charlie. They're for me. I've taken Keogh's block over. The old man looked at him dubiously. Well, but you ain't going to tie up no dog on us for him, are you? I suppose it's all right, though. Right, yes, said Gordon. It's for Mr. Grant, old man Grant. You've heard of Grant of Curryong? Never heard of him, said the aged man. But it makes no odds. Pay when you like. You'd better get on the coach, for I see the Opal Queen's ready for a start. You'll know her all right before long, I bet. Some of the fellows from round about has come in to give her a send-off like. There's the coach ready. You'd better get aboard, and you'll hear the, the send-off like. Young Stacy out there reckons he's going to make a speech. Charlie and Carew climbed up on the coach. The fat lady kissed Pike's wife and children with great solemnity. Goodbye, Alice. Goodbye, Nora, darling, she said. Then she marched in a stately way towards the vehicle, with the children forming a bodyguard round her. A group of men hung about uneasily, looking sheepish, and waved large, helpless red hands, till a young fellow about seven feet high, who looked more easy and had even larger hands than the rest, was hustled forward and began to mutter something that nobody could hear. Speak up, George, said a friend. The young man raised his voice to a shout and said, and so I propose three cheers and long life to the Opal Queen. As he spoke, he ran two or three paces forward toward a stump, meaning no doubt to get on it and lead the cheering. But, just as he was going to jump, a wretched little mongrel that had been in and out among the people's feet made a dash at him, fixed its teeth in the calf of his leg, and ran away howling at its own temerity. The young giant rushed after it, but the Opal Queen interposed. George, she said, don't you dare go for a kick to my dog. Well, what did he bite me for, then? said the giant, speaking out now in a voice that could be heard half a mile off. What did he bite me for? Never mind, George. Don't you go for to kick him, that's all. The opal queen, snorting like a grampus, climbed into the coach. The driver cracked his whip, and off they went. 
leaving the audience spellbound and the gigantic young man rubbing his leg. Soon Pikes faded away in the distance. As the colt jolted along, Carew and Charlie on the box seat occasionally peered in at the large swaying figure, half hidden in the dust. About two miles out of town, Considine, with all his earthly belongings in a small valise, stopped the coach and got on board, sitting in front with them. "'Have a look inside,' said Charlie. "'There's a woman in there looks rather like, uh, the lady you were talking about.' Considine looked in, then he sank back in his seat with his white face. "'By heavens,' he said, "'it's my wife.' "'That is funny,' said Charlie. "'Wonder what she's after. She must have heard somehow. She'll never lose sight of you now, Considine.' Here the driver struck into the conversation. "'See her inside,' he said, indicating the inside passenger with a nod of his head. "'She's off to Sydney, full rip. She reckons her husband's dead, and she's come in for a fortune.' "'Ah, she reckons he's dead, does she?' said Charlie carelessly. "'Didn't know she had a husband.' "'Oh, yes,' said the driver. "'She came up here passing by the name of Keogh, but it seems that ain't her husband's name at all.' "'Oh, indeed.' Do you happen to have heard what her husband's name is, and when did he die? I never heard the no-husband's name, replied the driver. Keo was her name, I dare say. If I asked her, she'd tell me. Shall I ask her? No, said Considine firmly. Don't annoy her at all. Leave her well alone, young fellow. What odds is it to you how many husbands the poor woman has had? No, said the driver dispassionately. It's no odds to me, nor yet to you, I don't suppose. She's in for a real big thing, I believe. A telegram came to the telegraph station after I left last trip, and young Jack Sheehan, he brought it on after me, rode a hundred miles pretty well to catch me up. He reckoned she was coming in for a hundred thousand pounds. I wouldn't mind marrying her myself, if it's true. Plenty worse-looking sorts than her about. What do you think, eh, mister? Addressing Considine. Marry her and be blowed, said that worthy sociably and the driver stiffened and refused to talk further on the subject. Meanwhile the three discussed the matter in low tones. It was practically impossible that anyone could have heard of the identity of Keogh with the missing Considine. How then had the story got about that her husband was dead, and that she had come into money? She must have seen Considine get on the coach, but she had made no sign. Their astonishment was deeper than ever when the coach stopped for a midday halt. It was quite impossible for Considine to conceal himself. The house where the coach changed horses was a galvanized iron, one-roomed edifice in the middle of a glaring expanse of treeless plain, in which a quail could scarcely have hidden successfully. It was clear that Considine and his wife would have to come face to face. Carew and Charlie looked expectantly at each other, and clambered down quickly when the coach stopped. Considine descended more slowly, straightening his figure and looking fixedly before him. He marched up to the door of the change-house. His wife got leisurely out of the coach, put on her bonnet, and walked straight over to him. Then she looked him full in the face for at least three seconds, and passed by without a sign of recognition. The three men looked at each other. "'Well, this bangs all,' said Considine. "'She knew me all right. Why didn't she speak? She's afraid I'll clear out, and she's shamming not to know me. So she'll have me arrested as soon as she sights a bobby. I know her. Perhaps I'd better offer her something to go back and leave me alone, eh?' This was vetoed by a majority of two to one, and once more the coach started. They plodded away on the weary, dusty journey, until the iron roofs and walls of Baku gleamed like a mirage in the distance, and the coach rolled up to the hotel. A telegraph official came lounging forward. "'Anyone hear the name of Charles Gordon?' he said. "'That's me,' said Charlie. 
telegram for you, he said. It's been all over the country after you. Gordon tore it open and read it and stood spellbound. Then he silently handed it to Crewe. It was several weeks old and was from Pinnock, the solicitor. It read as follows. William Grant died suddenly yesterday. Will, made years ago, leaves everything to his wife. Reported that he married Margaret Donohoe and that she is still alive. and making all inquiries. Wire me anything you know. Charlie's face never changed a muscle. That's lively, he said. He never married that woman. And if he did, she died long ago. As he spoke, the lady passenger, having had some talk with the hotel people, came over to him with a beaming smile. And you're Charlie Gordon, she said with a mellifluous mixture of brogue and bush drawl. And you don't know me now a little bit. You were a little fellow when we last met. I'm Peggy Donohoe. That was Peggy Grant now, since I married poor dear Grant that's dead. And sure, rest his soul. Here she sniffed a little. Though he treated me cruel bad, so he did. You'll remember me brother Mick, Mick with the red hair. Yes, said Charlie slowly and deliberately. I remember him well, and you too. And look here, Peggy Donohoe, or Peggy Keogh, whichever you call yourself. You and Red Mick will have the most uphill fight you ever fought before you get one sixpence of William Grant's money. Why, your real husband is here on the coach with us. He turned and pulled Considine forward and once more husband and wife stood face to face. Considine, alias Keogh, smiled in a sickly way, tried to meet his wife's eyes, and failed altogether. She regarded him with a bold, unwinking stare. Im, she said. Im, me husband, this old crocodile. I never seen him before in me life. A look of hopeless perplexity settled on Considine's features for a moment, and then a ray of intelligence seemed to break in on him. She repeated her statement. I never seen this man before in my life, did I? Speak up now, and say, did I? Considine hesitated for a moment in visible distress. Then pulling himself together and looking boldly from one side to the other, he replied, Now that you mention it, ma, I don't think as ever you did. I must have made some mistake. He walked rapidly away, leaving Gordon and Peggy face to face. There you are, she said. What did I tell you? Husband? He's no husband of mine. You're making a mistake, Charlie. Charlie looked after the retreating bushman, and back at the good lady who was beaming at him. "'Don't call me Charlie,' he said. "'That old man has come in for a whole lot of money in England. His name is Considine, and he pretends he isn't your husband, so that he can get the money and leave you out of it. Don't be a fool. It's a lot better for you to stick to him than to try for William Grant's money. Mr. Carew and I can prove he said you were his wife.' "'Ah, oh, look at that now. Said I was his wife, and his name was Considine. The lying old vagabond. His name's not Considine, and I'm not his wife, nor never was. Grant was my husband, and I'll prove it in a court of law, so I will. Her voice began to rise like a southeasterly gale, and Charlie beat a retreat. He went to look for the old man, but could not find him anywhere. Talking the matter over with Carew, he got no satisfaction from the wisdom of that sullen. Deuced awkward thing, don't you know, was his only comment. Things were even more awkward when the coach drew up to start, and no sign of the old man could be found. He had strolled off to the back of the hotel, and vanished as absolutely as if the earth had swallowed him. The Chinese cook was severely cross-questioned, but relapsed into idiotic smiles and plentiful, no savvies. A black fellow loafing about the back of the hotel was asked as he had seen a tall, thin old man with a beard going down the street. He said, Yowie, he'd been gone no longer other pub. 
but as on further questioning he modified his statement by asserting that the man he saw was young short and very fat no heed was paid to his evidence it being the habit of blacks to give any answer that they think will please the questioner he'll play us some dog tricks that old fellow said charlie i can't wait here looking for him though i'll find him when i want him if he's above ground now let's go on can't keep the coach waiting forever while we unearth him let's get aboard just as the coach was about to start a drover came out of the bar of the hotel wiping his lips with the back of his hand he stared vacantly about him first up the street and then down looked hard at a post in front of the hotel then stared up and down the street again at last he walked over and addressing the passengers in a body said did any of you see your horse anywhere i left my prad here and he's gone a bystander languidly cutting up a pipeful of tobacco jerked his elbow down the road that old bloke took him he said old bloke that came in the coach while yous was all talkin in the pub he sneaks out here and nabs that horse and away like a rabbit see that dust on the plain that's him the drover looked helplessly out over the stretch of plain he seemed quite incapable of grappling with the problem took my horse did he well i'm blowed by cripes he had another good stare over the plain and back at the party my oath he added then the natural stoicism of the bushman came to his aid and he said in a resigned tone oh well anyways i suppose suppose he must have been in a hurry to go somewhere i suppose he'll fetch him back some time or other gordon leant down from the box of the coach you tell him he said when he does fetch him back that if i'd a had a rifle and had seen him sneaking off like that he'd have wanted an ambulance before he got much farther tell him i'll find him if i have to hunt him to death tell him that will you all right mister said the drover obligingly i'll tell him the horses plunged into their collars off went the coach into long stretches of dusty road with the fat red lady inside and our two friends outside and in course of time they found themselves once more in sydney where they took the earliest opportunity to call on Pinnock and hold a council of war against Peggy. End of chapter 19